Welcome to our Perimenopause What the F podcast, brought to you by the Perry community. In this podcast, your host, Rachel Hughes, talks everything, and we mean everything, perimenopause. She helps us navigate through all our What the F perimenopause moments and all, is this normal? Questions. Rachel talks with perimenopause experts, thought leaders, and inspirational voices of the community. To connect with other perimenopause warriors, download our free Perry app. You can find the link in our show notes. And now, let's dive right in. Hey everyone, this is Rachel Hughes of the Meno Memos here with another episode of Perry Talks, where we like to deep dive into all things perimenopause and menopause, bringing you the science and the sisterhood. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mandy Leonhardt on POI, or premature ovarian insufficiency. Premenopause, early menopause, Dr. Leonhardt is here to answer our questions. What is POI? Why does it happen and what can be done about it? This is going to be an informative and important hour. For future episodes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And now let's get started. Okay. Okay. Well, welcome Dr. Leonhard. Um, I'm going to introduce you. Dr. Mandy Leonhardt is a registered uh, general practitioner, uh, particularly interested in women's health, nutrition, and healthy aging. She has an ongoing um, private practice, uh, which special, excuse me, specializes in the holistic assessment and individualized treatment of hormonal imbalances at every stage of a woman's life, premenstrual syndrome, perimenopause, and menopause. Dr. Leonhardt's aim is to give women the best evidence-based, personally tailored advice about treatment options for hormonal imbalances and healthy aging. She's authored a book with her colleague, Dr. Hannah Short, called The Complete Guide to Premature Ovarian Insufficiency and Early Menopause. And I particularly love that you have this. Uh, You are the founder, organizer, and host of England's first menopause cafe a social franchise or pop-up event providing an opportunity for women, men, and anyone else uh, to exchange experiences and to have conversations about any issues related to menopause in a safe and confidential space. Welcome again, Dr. Leonhard. Um, Thank you, Rachel. Can you tell us um, why does early menopause matter? Why should any of us be concerned, want to know about it, and so on? Because um, it's a serious health condition. Um, it is based on ovaries that are either no longer there because they've been surgically removed or they've been damaged through treatments, for example, chemical treatments as part of chemotherapy, or they never really worked properly to start with. And ovaries are important glands that make important hormones that Every single cell needs to function. And it, that's why it is a serious health condition um, that we must recognize as such, because um, women who do not have these hormones cannot often, in the majority of the cases, do not function properly. 
And Dr. Leonhard, I, I'm sort of segueing into something I'll probably get back to later, but when I was researching a bit ahead of our call, I was struck by how many young women and maybe some in their teens, in their twenties, um, thirties, certainly younger than, than most of our age community, um, are struggling or suffer with or experience early menopause, um, and or POI. And I guess I'll leave it to you to sort of, you know, let us know what POI is. Um, but I was, I was really surprised. It seems like it's a larger number of young women than any of us might imagine. Yes, it is. And sadly, there's no one who's, um, properly, um, keeping track on who, how many are affected. And this is really, uh, really important and really something that we need to start doing, I think, as doctors internationally, um, that we, uh, have a good statistical database of women where we, uh, within the population and girls, um, that, that we can count so that we have more of a, of an idea who is affected and, and how many. Uh, at what what age group and why um the there is a difference between early menopause and premature ovarian insufficiency premature ovarian insufficiency pretty much leads into early menopause most of the time but early menopause is by definition a menopause that occurs between the age of 40 and 45 so if a woman who between the age of 40 and 45 who previously had uh, a menstrual cycle and now skips periods for more than 4 months or has um, ovaries that no longer uh, make sufficient amounts of, of estrogen or has a surgical menopause or um, any a menopause for any other reason, she would be in the group of early menopause between 40 and 45 years old. Women under the age of 40 who at any age, so usually we start from puberty, so maybe 11 years old up till the age of 40, if a person does not have functioning ovaries during that age, we call that premature ovarian insufficiency. POI is a little slightly different um, because if a, a woman or a girl has ovaries, um, sometimes they were working well before and then sometimes they don't, sometimes they never work properly. But when the, the ovaries are in situ, um, they tend to fluctuate more. It is not a, a definite, finite um, condition. They do um, still make or can occasionally contribute something, some hormones to the overall hormonal um, fluctuations, whereas um, early menopause is slightly more definite. So where fertility is, is definitely can be ruled out, fertility options from, from ovaries, but also um, um, the, the symptoms might be more severe. But we do know that premature variant sufficiency very, very often in the majority of the cases leads to a definite state of early menopause below the age of 45. Um, so there is, we also have to advise women who are in, who have POI that very, very occasionally, about in 5%, a spontaneous contraception can occur. So they can very occasionally get pregnant spontaneously, which actually in, in early menopause is not something that, that we see. Okay. So just, just to circle back for a minute, just to clarify. So, so POI or premature ovarian insufficiency is 
for a person under 40. Yes. Um, with dysfunctional ovaries. Yeah. Okay. Go yeah, ahead. I'm sorry. Just sorry to interrupt you, but weirdly, no, no. um, surgical menopause in this age group is also classed under POI. It doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, how okay, can you? Okay. No, if no. If you have no ovaries, they cannot function from the outset because they've been removed surgical. But, but in the classification, surgical menopause below the age of 40 is also classed as POI. And when someone, when someone's ovaries are not functioning optimally or as they should, yeah. What does that look like for that person? Do, do symptoms mimic what we know as perimenopause or come to understand as perimenopausal symptoms? Yes. Um, so to understand the symptoms, we have to understand what ovaries actually do. So ovaries are our egg basket. They mm. are normally, we're born even when we're in the tummy or in the, in the, in, in our mother's, um, body mm-hmm. in the form of an egg our mum so you know our mum when when your grandmother carried you she also carried you indirectly because your mum carried the eggs that you yes and, i know what you mean yes I, I, I love this idea actually yes it, you have to go further back so our ovaries are our egg baskets we have follicles they contain the ova or the eggs um, the, um and as long as we've got eggs um ovaries are operating or, or functioning as a as a hormonal gland. And the hormones that they make, and just to keep it really simple, are three major hormones, and that's estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So these are sex, we call them sex hormones, um, because they're important in the teenage um person, in the teenage girl to when when they start becoming teenagers, when sexual development starts to to kickstart at around eleven, age eleven or age ten, ovaries start making estrogen, testosterone, and so we see secondary sex developments of breast growth. We see growth in height, growth in um, in the body shape, difference in body shapes, and so on. And eventually, when when the girl is ready, she'll have a, a period. Now, we know that sexual development at puberty is extremely important, not not just for, for, for what we look like, but for our brain development, for our bone development, for our heart. Um, and when we do not make sufficient amounts of these hormones, so estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, we cannot develop fully as an adult. So in particular, where bones are concerned, we have only until the age of 25 to consolidate our bone mineral density. So what, what are the strengths that our bones are made of at, until that age is what we have for life. We cannot really increase that further. So when you then miss out of a normal puberty, pubertal development, you already miss out on a very important aspect of your future health, which is bone health. I had so no idea. one of the diseases that, that are arise of not having enough sex steroid hormones in that very, very um, fundamental developmental years is, is osteoporosis and osteoporosis leads to 
fragile fractures. So break, you're breaking your bones without an adequate trauma. So this is a very debilitating condition. And imagine you are 25 and you already break your spine or something. Mm. It's painful. It's debilitating. Mm. It stops you from having a normal life. Sure. Um, and later on, so these girls may not, they may not know what it is like to have energy going back to your question with symptoms. Estrogen gives us energy. It helps our brain to mature emotionally, um, mm. um, physiologically. It, it, it makes our brain cells grow, you know, our learning, our cognitive function. So the girls and women who are this young, who experienced this and do not have sufficient estrogen may have brain fog. They may feel they're slowed down. They can't think properly. They can't keep up uh, at, in school. Um, so there are cognitive um, problems, there are psychological problems. They not, may not feel they cannot cope with uh, emotional um, stress very well because they're missing out on the maturity of the brain, that that process that puberty brings along with it. Um, and physically, they can also feel they can get night sweats, hot flushes and severe lack of energy. Um, and obviously, sexual development with regards to sex drive, libido, um, interest in, uh, you know, sexual interest in other people um, and of course the biggest biggest uh, the most very debilitating problem that that these women and girls face is lack of fertility so how do you cope with being told at the age of 18 mm-hmm. look you'll never be able to have children and that is that is why it is important that we diagnose it uh, timely you know, do not wait uh, for this to to go away and 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 just watch watch and wait. Um, we need to be proactively um, seeking professional help for these people who are affected by this. Dr. Leonhard, I am um, struck and fascinated by this breakdown. We have I have been able to speak to people who have suffered with, or I should, I, I'm sorry, I keep phrasing it that way, but who have experienced early menopause for one reason or another, typically surgical uh, reasons, but they were older people. Um, they weren't children or someone 20, you know, younger than 25. And I'm listening to you sort of go through what such a young person can experience. And many things are coming to mind one of them first, if, if I might just ask you, you're very passionate about speaking about this. And I, I do wonder how you came as a general practitioner to be specifically interested in young people with, you know, early menopause and, and people with POI. Can you just share that for a moment? Of course. That's a really good question. So first of all, I am born in Germany. I'm German. Um, I, I went to medical school in Germany. Um, medical school is pretty much the same all over the world. There are different, slightly different systems, but I qualified as a doctor. And then I came to the UK to work as a junior doctor because they were, they were actively recruiting doctors. So I did my training in general practice that I did. I rotated through various clinical specialities and subspecialties. And finally I became a, what I think in the US is called a family doctor. When yes. in the United Kingdom, we call general practitioner who will see everything. So we know little of a lot of things. So we, we don't usually have very in-depth, um, knowledge of one particular disease or condition, but we know we have to know a lot about everything. Um, but as a female doctor, you will see more women because 
you have maybe they can relate to you and and they sure. will open up easier so you'll see um female patients probably more more frequently than my male colleagues but where they are more comfortable to discuss contraception and so on um and then i i personally had um perimenopausal symptoms quite early on and I could make sense of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And can you imagine being a doctor and not knowing what's happening to mm-hmm. you, how you're suddenly not coping with your workload or yes. emotional stress? And then what do you do as a, as a patient who doesn't have mm-hmm. any medical background? So I got help. I found a very good doctor who helped me, who identified what was wrong with me. And I then thought, I must look into this. I must, how do I help myself better? And so I read up about this. I learned, I trained. Then I, I found... Um, formal training with the British Menopause Society. I then also um, connected with colleagues and I met Dr. Hannah Short. Hannah, who herself, and I can openly talk about this, is in surgical menopause since the age of 36. So she has personal experience of being in surgical menopause and having the symptoms, experiencing lack of treatment, experiencing lack of understanding within the medical professional, um, you know, professionals, despite the fact that she's a doctor herself. So, and we... We are very much welcoming the increase in awareness around the world, but I don't know if you've noticed in but in the US whether you have that that um, awareness happening at the moment. But in the UK, we have a, a real momentum with um, awareness around menopause, perimenopause, yes. and of course, you are a, a frontline provider of, of mm. good information with your podcast mm. and your the talks you do. But I think uh, when you started your movement there was probably not much else out there i don't know how how how, what what was out there but what we have found that whilst we welcomed the awareness for for women who go through a natural age of menopause which would be normal from the age of 40 45 till 55 so that's normally when um this is not a medical condition necessarily but it's um a natural uh, condition. Of mm-hmm. course, women do suffer on a spectrum, you know, very badly or, or not at all. Mm-hmm. But what we found was that younger women were often left out of the conversation. So it was all about natural menopause. Yeah. Should you go on HRT or not? Should you do it naturally? Or yes or no? What do you do with lifestyle and so on? And Hannah, since her, she had her own experience, we, we thought, isn't it sad that they never talk about the fact that menopause can happen at any age? Right. They never talk about women who had cancer and are on menopause because of cancer. They talk a lot about treatments that are not not available for younger women because they mm. or younger um, patients that are affected. And we thought, and then we looked at the literature. We thought there's no single um, single book or resource really out there that um, provides a, a real a real um, in depth knowledge about how to guide how you know to, to help yourself if you are affected by this, this condition. So, and I also saw, and a big, and I, the more I specialized, the more patients I saw with these conditions, I saw um, very young women. So someone with Turner syndrome, genetic uh, conditions who caused this frequently at POI. And, and that opened my eyes. I, I saw how, how many years they were left on the wrong treatment, how many years they struggled to get the right advice or were just, were just not, we're just dismissed, you know, would yeah. you dismiss someone who is diabetic and, and has problems with insulin? Um, but equally, we shouldn't dismiss a woman who needs estrogen and it doesn't work for her. What we give her and just, just leave her on, on something that doesn't work for her. And she, 
she can't have a job. She struggles with, you know, with the fact that she has no fertility uh, relationships and so on. It is an all-encompassing condition where there is, sadly, in the UK, not a single doctor who feels responsible. Um, and for these for these people who are affected, they they have to be proactively seeking yeah. the right help, which is hard work and possibly expensive too. Yeah. We, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I, Please interrupt. I, no, no, no. I, I, I just love hearing you speak on this. And I'm, I, again, I'm, uh, I'm so, I guess, pleased for the women who will be able to read your book and, um, sort of be brought out into the light on this subject. And, just to circle back to the other part of my question, thank you for sharing sort of how you came to this. Um, but I am thinking about, again, these young, young women who are perhaps struggling in school. I mean, the, the, the list that you gave, lack of energy, mm-hmm. brain fog, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive difficulties, physiological challenges, psychological challenges, just sort of brain maturity and emotional development being stunted or thwarted or, or, uh, certainly made more challenged by this condition that maybe sounds like could be misdiagnosed for so long. And I'm imagining what doctors might offer these young women and their families as support. And I'm thinking things like therapy or antidepressants Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, (laughs) extra tutoring in school. I mean, it seems like the list could go on and on and just continue to miss the mark. So I wonder if you could speak first to uh, this issue of misdiagnosis a bit more and what these women may go through and then how they are, how they are diagnosed. And, and I guess this is a, this is sort of a piece that addresses the patient and the physician who may have young women walking into their office describing these symptoms or maybe even their parents describing these symptoms for them and, and, you know, don't even think of what they might, um, tests they may give or something like that. So yeah. could, I'm sorry, that was a very long question, but just let me let me know it's if I can backtrack. No, it's a brilliant question, and I, maybe it's easier if I started from uh, start your last question first, uh, answer that first with regard to diagnosis. So, when do we know that something is not right? When do we know that something is wrong? So, we know that the very vast majority in the American Association of Pediatric Pediatricians um, say that pretty much every single girl at the age of 15 would have had her period in the U.S., in the United mm-hmm. States, probably mm-hmm. earlier. The average age now is 12 and a half years in the Western world. Um, mm-hmm. it, there are certain countries in the develop, so in, in, in countries where maybe nutrition is not in abundance, so where right. that, that um, the onset of period is slightly later, but in the Western world and the Northern Hemisphere is about 12 and a half years. If a girl hasn't had her period, her first period at the age of 15, she should see a doctor. That's just Mm -hmm. a rule. You know, Mm -hmm. if she doesn't show by that time signs of sexual development with regards to um, some breast growth, some pubic hair growth, some underarm growth, underarm hair growth, 
um, and she should see um, a doctor. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with her. It doesn't mean that at all, but it's good to have her, you know, checked out. Um, and it, let's say, so this is one thing. If she hasn't had a period by the age of 15, we run a number of blood tests. So we do check sex hormone levels. We do check um, something called FSH, follicle stimulating mm. hormone. We may do an ultrasound of the ovaries to check, are they even there? You know, some, some people mm-hmm. are born without ovaries from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we might do uh, genetic testing to check for very f- common genetic conditions like Turner syndrome or fragile X syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, when, once we've ruled that out, uh, we have to, so there is a workup that we do on a step-by-step plan, um, that, that we do. Some, some girls may just be a little late with their period and that's absolutely fine. Um, but it is good to get the diagnosis around that age as soon as we can, because when we have a diagnosis, we can treat it very efficiently. And to treat this condition, that you treat the root cause by replacing the hormones that their own ovaries no, no, don't, don't make. So you give them estrogen, you give them testosterone, you know, you can give them mm-hmm. progesterone. We have them mm-hmm. all available. Very easy to take. Yeah. Um, but what happens in girls? Let's say there are women and girls who have started off with having periods. They had normal puberty. They started having periods. And let's say at the age of 22, their periods stop. Mm-hmm. You know, this is another case that is very common where I would say that if you are um, a woman who is, who ever had normal, rec- fairly regular periods and you have not had a period for four months or longer, do see a doctor. First of all, do a pregnancy test if you think that could be the case. Of mm, course, we always sure. have to do that. But yeah. let's say that's not an option or you've done that. Mm-hmm. For mu- not having a period for four months from previously having regular periods is not normal. We need to see periods as a vital sign, like heart rate, like mm-hmm. breathing, like temperature, um, like passing urine and going to the toilet. It's mm-hmm. a vital sign. It is a sign of health and vitality. It's a sign of good ovarian function to have a period every month, provided we are not on birth control or any other hormonal treatment. Now, again, there are different things that can make your period stop apart from pregnancy, stress, a condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea. So Mm. you can starve yourself into not having periods. So eating disorders, stress, exam stress um, with school and work, not sleeping. This is a condition that is not POI, that is fully reversible. So if there's an underlying cause that may have stopped your period, then we can investigate that and we can reverse this and address the underlying cause and ovaries will work better and function better mm. once we've addressed the underlying cause. If it's not that, and we have established with uh, blood tests, including doing two follicle-stimulating hormone blood tests um, four to six weeks apart, and they're both raised, so if we do if a woman has stopped her period of four months, we do this blood test, we do an estradiol test, but we also do two blood tests to show that the FSH is raised. So this is something we normally only see in menopause, in, 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 in menopause that is very, very um, much happening in older women. If we see that same blood test raised, this level very high in a menopausal age, that is not normal in a woman or girl under the age of 40, in which case we again, again need to step up investigations and look for a reason. We need to check autoimmune uh, conditions. We need to check um, 
um, her, her ovaries and do a blood, do um, do an ultrasound scan and so on. Depending on where you live, what your access to healthcare is, how much money it might cost you, whether anyone pays. So, but the basics are basically identifying that your periods have stopped for four, that four months or longer, which is not normal. And this is the take home message, regardless of what you remember today, mm. just pass this message on to anyone you know that if you've had normal periods and you stop it for four months, see a doctor. Um, then these simple blood tests, two blood tests, so one, the same blood test, um, four to six weeks apart, part can give us a very good idea as to whether this is, um, POI or whether this is stress related. There's another condition that has nothing to do with POI that makes periods very infrequent, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm. That does not lead to an early menopause. The opposite is the case. They have too many eggs. It can lead to a late menopause and it is not associated with the same risk as early menopause. So again, we can exclude that with a range of blood tests. These blood tests, at least in the UK, are accessible. They're not expensive. Um, all the fancy tests we may add on um, are not necessarily um, needed to make a, a diagnosis, uh, but they are good and helpful to get to the bottom of it and, and address the root cause right. if there is one that we can address. But the, the main, so any, any test that I talked about, the, the FSH can be done by a family doctor and they are not expensive, at least not in the UK. And as I'm, as far as I'm aware, not in other countries either. They're accessible and mainstream. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. I, um, I wanted to talk about the psychological impact in, in a moment, but just to sort of, um, close the loop around, um, you mentioned, that hormone treatments are available and that if a young woman is um, is diagnosed with POI, that she would start uh, treatments. And I'm just curious, um, does this look like birth control pills or hormone replacement therapy? And with that, do you, are you also testing this is, this is sort of me. This is, I'm really exposing my ignorance here with this question, no. but, but are you, are you, are you also testing sort of where hormones are? It, meaning this individual may need more testosterone. This individual may need less estrogen. Is it sort of get fine tuned or is it here's some HRT or here's birth control? What? What would you do? Yes. So first of all, so yes, so we've got these glands, the ovaries that do not make the hormones that we desperately need. And mm -hmm. the root cause treatment is replacing these hormones that our, this, this, this organ that we have doesn't work properly. So we replace the hormones. It's a bit mm -hmm. like an underfunctioning thyroid gland or diabetes. We replace insulin. Yes. And we have these hormones available, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Now, this is based on someone who has not, who is not in POI or early menopause because of estrogen dependent tumors or cancers. So if you've had, okay. um, your ovaries removed because you had ovarian cancer or you've had breast cancer that was estrogen hormone positive, you may not be able to take estrogen because that could drive the growth or recurrence of your previous cancer. Right. Just to be clear on that, these women often uh, cannot uh, 
at least for a while, uh, depending on the type of cancer that they may not all be able to take hormone replacement therapy or menopausal um, hormone therapy. That, that, that's the, the term in the US. So just to be clear, we're talking about um, someone who who has not had this history of hormone dependent cancers. And in that case, HRT, the, what we call HRT in the UK, hormone replacement therapy treats the root cause. And the previously, we weren't quite sure what is the best way forward. Is it birth control or is it actual replacing the hormones themselves? Because birth control contains both synthetic estrogen and synthetic progestins. So very frequently, ethanol estradiol, which is not the same hormone that our own ovaries make. In some cases, this may be the preferred choice for the patient to use as a form of treatment. Let's say you are 17 all your friends go on birth control mm. and they all, you want to be part of the peer group. You do not want to say I'm taking HRT that your granny takes. I, I'm on birth control too. So if that is important to you, then this is a good choice for you. You can use birth control as a replacement for these ovarian hormones. However, it is not the best possible treatment because it is not the same hormone that we are that we need that our ovaries would be making however what it does do is it may give you periods regularly if that is something that you psychologically need to feel like your peer group like your friends who get periods and talk about getting periods and you don't get periods and never had one and you want to, to know what it's like and it's important to you to have periods you may perfectly be happy to go on the, the contraceptive pill on birth control pill. However, um, uh, scientifically, we know from, from studies that HRT is better than the birth control pill because you can, as you quite rightly said, monitor it and you can fine tune it and you can mm. personalize it. With the birth control pill, we would not do blood tests to see what level of estrogen they achieve in their blood because what we we cannot test this um, um, synthetic molecule in the bloodstream. Right. We wouldn't do that. It's a one fits all. There you can't really. There are low dose pills and 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 high yes, dose pills, but they're yes. really just two options. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't do blood tests for this. We would just give that and hope for the best. Mm. Um, but with hormone replacement therapy, we can indeed test and fine tune and find an individual level and a dose where someone functions well and has the least side effects. So we do not want to give someone too much estrogen, sure. which can lead to breast tenderness. It can lead to heavy periods. It can, you know, it doesn't make you happy to have est- really high estrogen levels, but we want to give someone enough to pr- provide bone protection. And there is some evidence that when we do blood tests for estradiol and for example, we check estradiol, that we need to achieve a certain blood test within a range of three to 500 picomol per liter. This is in the UK. Mm. And that's what we can do by using preferably transdermal estrogen options in the UK. Again, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, we have options, a spray, like a spray that delivers yeah. estrogen through the skin in the form of a spray. We have a gel, we have a patch. They come in different strengths. So if someone does not tolerate a very high strength, we can go a bit lower. Um, some more, more than often we have to give higher doses in younger, younger women to, mm. to get them 
energize and, and help them to feel better, but not everyone will tolerate a higher dose either. So the HRT option, it would be preferred because as you quite rightly said, we have a way of monitoring the blood tests, the, the, um, the actual each and then in the blood tests, we can personalize this treatment more to the specific symptoms of the patient, but also to achieve a better bone protection and um, yes, this is in, a, in, a, in an ideal world. This is what we would happen have, have, and we would also uh, replace testosterone because ovaries make half right. of our total testosterone. And again, we can replace this in the form of a cream, mm. um, and we can or gel. So we would that we would also then check in that bloodstream um, which level of testosterone they've achieved are achieving with the with the treatment and whether they're actually absorbing it. And those who don't absorb any hormones, they sometimes have to get, we have to give them hormone implants. So they're little pallets that yes. we push into the subcutaneous tissue. Um, so they then get released over several months. Thank you for that. You, you answered my follow-up question, which was um, about topical or systemic hormones. And it sounds like all options are on the table. Does this include also vaginal Estrogen, topical estrogen. Oh my God, this is such a good question. You know what? Thank you. Oh, Thank you. good. Yes, yes. I'm <laughs> I so completely. Glad. Yes, of course. This is ultimately important. You know, you cannot imagine what it's like. I've when we wrote the book, we send out questionnaires to women in early menopause and with POI. We sent out questionnaire and asked them what what was the what was the, one of the symptoms that they found very debilitating that no one ever addressed? And they said, you know, when I was 17 years old, I couldn't ride a bike because my mm. vulva was so, so sore oh, and cracked and thin. I, I couldn't ride a bike or I could, I, you know, intercourse was like when I had a boyfriend having mm. sex was like, like having a cheese grater or sandpaper oh. down there. You know, oh. these were real words from women, you know, and girls and, and yes, vaginal genital urinary health um, is so important. That tissue is very, very sensitive to estrogen, responds really well. And in, even in women, for example, who had hormone-dependent cancer like breast cancer, we can give them vaginal topical, what we call topical estrogen now. It, they come in the form of a ring that you insert in a, a gel, a cream, a pessary. There's this is very safe and you can combine this with mm -hmm. systemic HRT. So you may find that you are using a, a gel. And by the way, we sometimes also give tablets. There's absolutely no problem taking an estrogen tablet. The only, the only slight, um, concern with, with oral estrogen is a very, very small increase in blood clotting. But mm -hmm. if you're young and healthy and fit and don't smoke, um, right. again, if you only absorb oral estrogen, that is, a, that is your option. And that is absolutely fine. But regardless of wh whether you take, um, systemic HRT, you can also, in addition, and often have to, um, address genitourinary symptoms with topical treatments. For example, you can get an increased risk of bladder infections, thrush, or um, um, just really painful uh, sexual intercourse, um, or even day-to-day -day activities like riding a bike, sitting in an office sure. chair, or riding a horse, or um, doing sports, uh, or just wearing a tight jeans can mm -hmm. be painful. And mm -hmm. imagine you're 25 and you you can't do these activities like your friends do. And yes, we must we must a menopause consultation with any woman, like regardless of age, actually should include a question about. How is your bladder health? How is your vaginal health? How is your vulva? Is, you know, when you wipe yourself, is it sore? Is it painful? Do you have any discomfort? 
And again, it should not be just about intercourse. Yeah. You may not yeah. be sexually active and have vaginal irritation and pain. And this is not just a, a vessel for male or sexual pleasure. It, it is about quality of life, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, and that's why um, we we mustn't ignore this. And that's why I really loved it that you asked that question. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Uh, and you're... <laughs> This conversation is just incredible. You're, you're actually just making me think of more and more things to ask. And, and just to sort of close the loop on this, and this is a strange question, but I was thinking if a woman starts on HRT at 19, let's say, and she's doing well and she's thriving and she's, she, <laughs> excuse me, she is now 48. Mm-hmm. And it's time to start in, in another body who isn't living with POI, uh, sort of the, the natural quote unquote mm-hmm. perimenopausal menopausal stage of life. For someone like myself who has recently started taking HRT and have not experienced POI or early menopause, I was happy to start taking HRT. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, I can't, for lack of a, for for an easy way to phrase it, it, it almost sort of pauses the clock a little bit, right? I'm not sort of rapidly, um, you know, everything isn't falling apart so quickly anymore, right? But now for somebody who's lived with POI, and has been on hormone replacement and now is in their late forties or fifty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, do they, is it sort of, do you sort of look at it the same way as I might? Meaning, oh, I, I don't, you know, I, I need, I continue to need more estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, whatever. Mm-hmm. I need it to sleep. I need it to function. I need it to mm-hmm. decrease brain fog make me less irritable, whatever it looks like. So I guess, does that person continue to take hormone replacement or do you tweak it because they are in an older body now and things should sort of start looking differently or are those questions that are just silly? No, there's no silly question when it comes to that. And this this is, again, a really, really important question. So the official guidelines say that a woman who takes, um, HRT and, and it's sorry, I'm sorry if I use this, 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 it's term, fine. I know it's different. in the, in the, um, in North America, it's called uh, menopausal hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, um, when we use it for POI, actually the term hormone replacement is correct because okay. we really are replacing something yes. that your body would naturally make at that age and mm-hmm. doesn't. So we're replacing it and it is a medical treatment. It is really almost not optional if, you know, it's, it's to, we take this to prevent dementia, early death, osteoporosis, cardiovascular problems. Women take this as a medical treatment to prevent uh, health, future health consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you asked, what does she do when she reaches the natural age of when her normal menopause would ha- would have happened naturally? Well, it is up to her. The official guidelines state that if a woman takes HRT as a part of a medical treatment for POI as a condition or early menopause, she should take it ideally until the age of when natural menopause would, would happen. So 51 okay. in the UK. So we would recommend her strongly to not stop before the age of 51, provided she gets on with it well. Okay. At that age, it is up to her. But as a doctor, if I have a woman in front of me who gets on really well with her HRT, who functions, who um, sleeps well, who has a job, who has a lovely relationship, who has emotional, um, is emotionally in a good place, I would never get to ask her to come off it. This is actually the age when a woman, a healthy woman who enters the menopause then would, with symptoms, would start HRT. So why would I ask right. her to come off right. it? The benefits will continue. So just to be clear, one of the reasons why in the past there were limits on how long we should be taking HRT, that was this whole breast cancer scare, you know, mm, yeah. where we said, oh, you should only be on it for five years over the age of 50 and then the breast cancer quest. Well, we have types of HRT now where breast cancer risk is so small that even if we take it beyond uh, five years, this is should be our individual choice. It should be a choice that we weigh up between benefits and risks. And if we are happy to take a very small increased risk in breast cancer for the sake of very much better quality of life, um, osteoporosis prevention, um, overall well-being, then that is your individual choice to make. And you should find a doctor that gives you very clear, factual, fact-based information about what the risks are and what the benefits are. And then you can make up your own mind. So it is a bit more optional when we, when women like that okay. reach that age. Where, and, and just to be clear, if they do take it up till 51, in women in early menopause who take HRT, there is absolutely no increased risk in breast cancer or any other cancer who take it up till the age of natural menopause. So we do not need to worry about a 25-year-old and the risk of breast cancer with HRT because remember, that hormone that we give her should be made by her own body. So why does would she have a risk of breast cancer, right. you know, based on that same mo- right. hormone? That yes, we- yes. So, um, it is not the same. They are not in the same uh, group at all. So... Yes, we recommend they take it till the natural age of menopause, 51, and then we need to give them the right information. And I would always recommend that they should ideally carry on because the transition from having estrogen to not having estrogen, yes, they can do that. They can wean themselves off HRT, but they will likely have symptoms uh, coming through that are very sure. similar to that that you would uh, have experienced with yeah. your natural menopause. Yeah. And why on earth would we do that to them? You know, absolutely. But it is their decision. If they feel strongly sure. about this, it's their decision. And yeah. as a doctor, as long as they have, so for example, let's say they have established osteoporosis, you know, mm. at the age of fifty-one, then they have a really good reason to carry on with with taking the hormones to prevent the bone thinning from worsening mm-hmm. it is a it is i think a balance between medical risks so established osteoporosis maybe any other reasons muscle wasting where where the hormone hormone therapy could have major benefits and but also her individual choice uh, and uh, looking forward what does she want to do and we have mm-hmm. to always work with the individual woman and and ask her what do you want you know yeah, of course thank you thank you for that 
Um, <clears throat> doctor, you, you brought up sort of threaded throughout our conversation, the psychological impact on these women and young, young women. And when you spoke about, um, you know, a teenager sort of influenced by her peer group and maybe she wants to experience a monthly menstrual period and, you know, maybe she, whatever, whatever the, 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 um, sort of what she's going through. I, I just, I, and I think about the couple of people I've spoken, had opportunity to speak with, um, on other occasions about this and the psychological piece as everything is, I guess, in, in our lives is so powerful and, and almost, I think, I feel like sort of drives you forward in, in the work that you do and in wanting to amplify this, this conversation. But I wonder if you could just speak sort of a little more, um, maybe specifically or just sort of flush out for us a little more what you have experienced as a physician. Uh, yeah. Some of so the, the psychological impact is huge. It's, um, because it affects your identity as a woman directly. Mm-hmm. Women have the ability to reproduce, to create life and carry a baby or become pregnant. Now, mm-hmm. uh, in many, co- and there comes also the psychological impact is very much related to the cultural environment they live in. Sure. So there might be cultures, cultures where reproduction or this, the ability to reproduce is very highly valued. Of course, we all value it, but in some, in other cultures, we can accept uh, if a woman makes a choice, for example, to be child-free by choice, th- right. this is a valid, a very valid choice. And women should be able to make that choice, not to have children, mm-hmm. not because they can't have them, but just because it's their choice. Their choice. Um, yeah. But let's say that you live in a culture where rep- where your reproductive skills are your, the only thing that is valued about you, not not your brain or what you can do or how well you do maths, but but just can you have a baby? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 uh, that defines your value. Um, and, and, and these women have a very hard standing. It, it is heartbreaking. I have met, uh, women who, um, who got married and after marriage, it turned out they couldn't, they were infertile. They had POI and the, the, the husband left them. Mm-hmm. So, why did they marry them? They didn't marry them, you know, for for who they were uh, through good times and bad times. Mm -hmm. They married them because they thought this would be a life partner they could have children with. And now this um, qualification Mm -hmm. that they is no longer available. So they dumped them. Mm -hmm. I also have met women who, um, yeah, who were, who were were the, uh, where the, um, the wedding was called off when, when the, the family from the groom found out. So, um, it, it is heartbreaking because women are traditionally defined over their reproduct- reproductive sure. value, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they want children or not. And this mm-hmm. is, is very sad, but it is obviously also psychologically extremely difficult to cope with from the outset to be told that this option of having children is not even, is not does not exist for you. So it is all very well that we have choice of birth control now. We can make a conscious decision to be sexually active, but not have children. 
although that is going backwards, if I may say, in the United States, and we have to be as women, yes. we have to be vigilant to not mm-hmm. let this mm-hmm. get worse. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, it's terrifying yeah, and enraging. Let's not, yeah, let's not go into this. But let's say um, a healthy woman has that choice in an ideal world. Sure and control over over whether she gets pregnant or not. But if you have, haven't even got the choice, if you're told age 20 that you you can, you don't have that choice, that that yeah. choice is taken away from you straight away. And sadly, the way medical professionals talk or communicate. So a lot, if you're lucky and you find a doctor who has got yeah. good communication skills, they may tell you in a way that, that you can then find find further help and and they may may direct you into into um an you know a, a direction where you can find support but i have heard of cases where a woman just accidentally read the ultrasound report and it just said oh no follicles present are infertile and and she just was faced with 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 a with this report um or it was or, or they were told the, the mum was told, yeah, your daughter's got POI, she can't have children. And the, the, the wow. daughter was in the room while the mum was oh, receiving the message. Mm-hmm. You know, really cruel behavior mm-hmm. from medical mm-hmm. professionals who, who do not understand this often, uh, well enough to, to really fathom what happens. Because again, if you're, if you're younger, you think the world is your oyster. You can mm-hmm. leave family planning for another time. You know, you're just having a good time. You focus on your education. Sure, you focus sure. on school. You focus on maybe finding the right partner initially. But, but that, that is taken away from you. It's, um, it's a really cruel, it's a thief. So POI is a, is, is a thief. It, mm-hmm. it robs you of part of your identity, who you are as a girl and as a woman. I think regardless of ever, of whether you actually want to have a child or not. Sure. And, yes, yes. And I, how do you yeah. then recreate the value for yourself? How mm. do you get the confidence back that, that you, you, that you have to recreate your identity and, and, and say, I am not defined by this condition. I am a woman. I am a girl. Right. I'm a worthwhile human being. I have a lot to give to this community. Um, and then you face this constant onslaught of comments from society mm-hmm. where I have a patient who doesn't go to family gatherings because there is a stupid old aunt who constantly tells her every single time he sees her, Oh, so when are you going to have children? Right. And it's like, I'm not going to explain to you what's going on. It's none of your business. So mm-hmm. having to justify what your body is capable of or not is tiring Yes. And I think psychologically it grinds you down because you, you, it is an invisible disability that you cannot see from the outside. Mm. You know, you look, you may look healthy and completely. Sure. Sure. Um, sure. And, but you carry it with you. Um, then your friends and family may, or your friends may all, you know, you do school, then your friends have children and yeah. then you have to watch them. Then your sister, or your brother yeah. may, your yeah. parents become grandchildren, but you're not one of them who can deliver the same. So it is really hard. It affects, you know, when we say a, a, a serious condition or a disease, you know, we expect our family to support us through this. You know, you're diagnosed with cancer. Everyone's like, oh, how can we help? How can we support you? When you have this condition, People don't understand the implications of it. So interesting. They, they, yes. I know? imagine there's almost a, a, a inadvertent blame 
I think yes. also, right? Because we, yes. we so, we so sort of collectively agree that women's value is, is about, is about their fertility. And so if that is taken from them, we don't automatically receive it that way. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So depressing. Yes. And it's exhausting if you're the mm-hmm. person who is dealing with this. It would Absolutely. be nice if we just lived in a tolerate, uh, understanding, kind society where we wait for someone to be ready to explain what's happening to them or where we don't make any snide comments or, you know, (laughs) but then you mustn't forget that it's also really hard. Let's say you were lucky enough to have a child or you adopt a child or you have a child, you are a mother. Mm -hmm. It is also really hard to be a mother and be menopausal. Imagine you have a a toddler who doesn't sleep. You've got your hormone problems. You know, it's worth worse enough if you're in your late forties, not Mm -hmm. sleeping Mm -hmm. when your children are grown up or you don't have any children. But imagine you are a young, a young mother who, um, who then has is a has menopause and a young child. So this is a taboo theme. Taboo theme that we are not talking about either, because you mustn't complain. You know, look at you. You've had a child, and and now you're complaining yes, that you're always yes. tired. You wanted this. Be glad. Be happy. You be be happy. You know, many many women yeah. with your condition don't even have a child, and you have it, and now you're complaining that you're always tired and getting hot flushes, and you're not sleeping. So. This is the worst, actually, because you feel guilty for having a child. The trap, yes. yes you're trapped, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you're 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 feeling guilty for complaining, complaining about mm-hmm. a condition that is invisible. That you know everyone feels tired with a young child, but you know what? It's, it's a thousand times worse if you're menopausal. Sure, <laughs> probably. You know, I can't imagine having a young child. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> but you know, you know, this is a, a massive taboo because. Uh, oh no! It's hard to be a mother. I love being a mother. Yeah. People would offer more support instead of blaming me for not being good enough. You know, you're never good enough, and this is this is just the bottom line. We need to claim back that we are good enough at any stage our bodies are good enough we are good enough it is not no one's fault and we should not we can't we need to stop judging women um for whatever choices they make you know and thank you for that dr leonhard i i i know we're getting so short on time and i just have no 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 i'm Absolutely loving talking to you. I, I don't want to take advantage of your time. And I just had a few more questions, if I might. Um, one is, uh, you, you spoke a lot about cultural impacts on mm-hmm. this, this condition. And I'm wondering if there are, um, racial factors or ethnicity factors that you know of, um, in this, in the statistics of women who are diagnosed or are living with POI? Is that a factor at all? Yes. So we have, um, we had, um, a Pakistan, a doctor of Pakistani origin mm-hmm. who helped us, um, uh, in the research of our book. Mm-hmm. And she said that in, um, and sometimes in, in certain, in, in religious cultures, um, in the Muslim community, it is extremely difficult, um, for a woman not to, for example, not to have children or not sure. to function properly. Um, again, this is their individual um there are there, i'm sure there will be um muslim families who are, who are absolutely supportive and and great but particularly within uh getting married um yeah. and getting 
that kind of um, if you're starting a family, this is um, where women often are are being uh, dismissed. Or um, she she gave us an example. Like she said that one one mother-in-law uh, sent the daughter-in-law yeah. back and called her uh, a dud. So it. Oh but so, in terms of yes. in terms of women of color who are are more diagnosed with mm-hmm. POI, is there any sort of racial or ethnic uh factor in yeah, this condition? Yeah. yeah. There's huge discrepancy. So mm-hmm. this may not this may be only partially cultural in a, in a sense that maybe um the, they they don't talk about it within their own community. Um, there might be um, obstacles within the community as to why women um, of, you know, of color do not talk about it within their mm-hmm. own community uh, amongst each other, amongst mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. own women or family. Um, but we do know that at least in the UK, um, uh, black women in the UK or women of color have um, face um, health discrepancy. Um, right. They, they face much higher hurdles to to receive good health care. Right. Inequitable healthcare. care. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. They have to mm-hmm. see, they have to make more appointments. They have to go, uh, make more effort to, uh, receive the health care they require for their condition. And, you know, you, you, it, it is up to them to fight mm-hmm. the fight mm-hmm. to receive mm-hmm. the health care. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not someone supporting them. And so I can imagine, let's say you went to your doctor five times and they dismiss you each time. What happens is that you believe them. You you right. you think hmm. I'm you're wrong, and you believe that there's that there's nothing they can do. Whilst actually, if you're a white woman who has private health insurance or can afford a second opinion privately, or is more pushy, or has a more um, educated language, or not a certain accent that the right, doctor understands, right, right. you know, then she can push for her rights and she can make a fuss. It is sadly the case that even healthcare is great in the UK, it's free at the, sure. at the point of access. We still have to be loud sometimes. We have to fight for for getting healthcare. Yes, yes, yes. And it's a bit of a postcode lottery, uh, depending on which doctor you see at the time of the day and what kind of form they're in. Right. Will you receive the healthcare you, you hoped for or will you have to make another appointment? So if you are not proactive and if you get pushed away, pushed away time and time again, I think you learn to become almost passive and yeah. you, you, and I think this is some a widespread problem within the, in the community of women of color and the, yeah. for black women, because they, everything is a fight already, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. fighting for healthcare. Mm-hmm. They don't always have the energy. And this is the problem. Yes. Yeah. No, I uh, thank you for that. That's that I was, I was wondering about that. I, I appreciate your, your insight. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback off of this sort of broader, um, you know, question about care and, and physicians. If you are, you know, maybe you're in your late teens or early twenties and you're able to get yourself to a doctor or for a parent of a younger woman and you're suspicious now, maybe you've, Googled or you've listened to this brilliant conversation. Um, what do you ask a physician if you are suspicious that you are someone with POI? Can you, I guess, sort of how do you advocate? What do you, what do you mm-hmm. say you want to be tested for? This kind of thing. How yeah. do you make the most of your appointment? 
Yes, so we have an uh, we have a, um, a chapter in our book about this because again, this is um, it it is really hard to deal with with being dismissed by someone mm-hmm. who is very much it's the the relationship between doctor and patient is a relationship of power. Yeah, the doctor mm-hmm. has the power, the patient has none. So or this is how we perceive it um, as right. patient. We go to the doctor to hope that they will help us in good faith, but some. Let's, if the doctor doesn't not believe us, what do we do then? You know, we are dependent on the goodwill of the doctor and the education of the doctor at that, at that stage. So it's always good that it can be a very emotionally charged consultation because it is affecting you directly. And if they are not listening, it can be quite make you angry, for example. Sure. So first of all, write down your thoughts, write down, keep a symptom diary for a couple of months. Track your periods, write down your symptoms very clearly um, that you experience um, and write down maybe five questions that you have. Is it normal not to have a period for four months? What could be the reason? Could you explain me why someone would stop her period for four months? To the, you know, you can ask that. You can mm-hmm. ask, should we investigate this? And when you say, no, we shouldn't, why not? Mm-hmm. Ask why. Mm-hmm. I ask what what hap- happens to me? Why is it happening to me? To me? And what can we do about this? You know, keep asking the, these questions. And then if you do not hear the right answer, challenge the health professional. Say, why would you think it is appropriate not to take this further? Wouldn't there be health consequences if we missed this? Would you think it is appropriate? Um, and just see what they say. And then if they're still dismissing you or you feel like you're not being listened to, you can say, is there anyone I can, else I could see for a second opinion? I, because I don't think, that um that this is enough I would like to have some blood tests i would like to have further investigations to rule out other reasons and if they are all coming back i i'm happy to go home and just do nothing but at the moment i feel very strongly that this is not right and i would like to have further investigations so you have to challenge the health professional if they do um fob you off or if they do not um support you in any way that you feel you should be supported. The other thing you can do is you can take someone with you. Mm. You can take another person with you who asks these questions for you on your behalf or acts as a witness. Now, I don't want to paint health care professionals as uncaring or not sure. not doing the right thing. You know, this is not this is not fair and this wouldn't be right mm-hmm. because there's a lot to go through at that very short appointment yes. that you all have. So this is another thing that maybe make yourself make it clear to yourself that one appointment won't be enough you know you need to you need to come back a little a few more times you need to come back to have the blood test to talk through the results to maybe ask for a referral to secondary care to a specialist mm-hmm. if your doctor doesn't know much about it um mm-hmm. and sort of educate yourself along the way and structure your thoughts um um have some have some idea about what you expect what what is the ideal outcome of this consultation and explain that to your doctor and say look actually i was expecting this to happen i understand right. that technically it's not possible maybe because i can't have the blood test in this area but do you know anyone who would do this blood test can i travel there can you refer me to this person mm-hmm. so push a little further each time on each appointment but again it can be expensive depending on where you live in the world if you have sure. to pay each time it can be emotionally draining and it can be time consuming. So if you have to work 
every time the doctor's surgery is open, yeah. You, yeah. you can't attend your, your, your uh, appointment because you have to take a day of work that you can't afford. How do you receive healthcare? You know, so I think sometimes take someone you trust as a witness, um, a support person who asks the right question on your behalf is also quite helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, finally, uh, I, boy, I hate to let you go. I, I just, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I, you've just sort of reframed and illustrated a condition that, um, I, absolutely needs more attention. I'm just so grateful that you came and spoke here to the community. This is just incredible. Um, is there anything I've missed, you know, in the last minute, I guess, that you would really want women to know? And by the way, I, I do want to encourage people to get your book. I, I you. think, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's, um, it should be on, on every person's shelf, parent, woman, spouse. Um, but is there anything briefly that I missed that you would want women, young women, parents to, to know about this condition? I think I want to, um, I want to finish our, our discussion with, with a sense of hope. Mm. Um, so first of all, the good news is we live in a world where we can have treatment in an ideal world, you know, yeah. Even if it takes you a while to access this treatment, don't give up. Yeah. You know, seek help. If you don't succeed with the first health doctor or healthcare professional, find another one. Find someone who listens, who understands where you come from and has the right education. Um, so don't give up. Keep, keep pursuing. Um, to receive the right treatment, inform yourself as much as you can. There's lots of free resources on the internet now. So there's hope. There is, there is treatment. So again, if you start treatment and the first thing you try doesn't quite work for you, don't worry. Try something else. You know, mm. you, you just have to maybe try different things before you find what works for you. Treatment is now individualized. So do not give up when the, at the first hurdle. You can have a good and, and fulfilled life with or without children. You know, it, it, I think we need to instill a sense of hope and, yeah. and give women their power back, their internal power over their bodies and over their, yeah. their, you know, what, that they're special over their, right. over their intrinsic value of who they are as a person. Right. Um, and that they can achieve great things and it is not a reason to for them to hold them back but also to acknowledge that at the same time they have a condition that makes them sometimes more tired than other people that yeah. maybe requires self-care so what i would like every woman to learn is to set boundaries for herself you know set boundaries towards the medical profession to say look you are you're off here you know you're not treating me with respect you don't know anything about this condition and you are not offering me any help. So I'm sorry, I can't work with you. Right. That is the boundary, but also boundaries towards the family, boundaries towards um, employers that we haven't even discussed support yes. in the workplace. You know, yes. how do we support uh, these women in the workplace? They, they Should we open up about this or should we keep quiet? Because mm -hmm. not tell our boss in case they fire us if they hear that we have this condition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, but setting boundaries is important and, and realizing there's always hope, there's always help 
in one way or the other, there's, there are places you can go to and if they don't exist, create them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like your menopause cafe. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Start a small community, mm-hmm. um, meeting room, you know, somewhere in a, in a public library to get other women together because my final message, and I'm sorry if I am talking so no, much, no, no. would be you are not alone. You yeah. are, you're one of, of millions in the world, you know, you are not alone. Talk about it and, and, and support each other. Find people that have your, your, your best, you, you know, you have your, have, have your um, best outcome at heart and who don't drain your energy. Find people who support you, who you can um, discuss this with, be open with and, and remember you're not alone. Dr. Mandy Leonhardt, I, I, your, your kindness and your attention to and uh, your um, devotion, I think, and dedication to women living with this condition is just, uh, you, I- I'm terribly grateful to have had this hour with you. And um, <laughs> a little speeches, it was just a wonderful no, conversation. Listen, I'm grateful you. to you for giving me a platform to raise awareness. So you are part of this. We are a community yes. of of women and people who who can only make this work together. I could, it's it's no good me being on my own in my right. little room as a doctor right. helping as many women as I can. But actually, it's it's you getting the message out. So please don't undermine your own. You know, you are great, you. and what you do is great. So thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really grateful. And Thank if we you. just help one woman tonight who tracks a period and realizes yes. she skips a period for four months, yeah. hey, go to the doctor, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. normal. Yeah. If we just had one woman that we that we helped tonight, I'm already really happy. <laughs> yeah. Same here, Dr. Leonhardt. Thank you so much. And I yes. I really would love to um perhaps in the new year. I didn't get to ask you sort of what's next for you, but I'd love to come back and have this conversation again. And, you know, we can sort of talk through where you might like to take it more next yeah. time. Cause I know there's, there is so much that I know that we didn't touch on. And this is, this is, um, it, this particular, uh, piece of the, the puzzle just needs to, you know, continue to be spoken about. So Absolutely. I'd love to speak again. And it would thank be you pleasure so to very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thank Enjoy you. the rest of your weekend. Same to you and have, you. relax and everyone else. Thank you so much for. Yes. For thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye, Dr. Leonhardt. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Perimenopause What the F podcast. The perimenopause journey can be lonely and it doesn't have to be that way. Make sure to download our free Peri app to connect with perimenopause warriors in the same stage of life. See you next time, Peri sisters.